Well, in a couple days, our country turns 247. 247 years old. I mean, we're getting close to 250, you know, quarter of a millennium, right? Now, that's, now I know for, uh, for the Basque students coming from Spain, 250 years might not seem like a big deal, but for us, that's a, that's a big deal, you know? That's a, that's a kind of a nice round number. And, and you know, in, in, inevitably on uh, the 4th of July, you'll, you'll read something or hear something or, or, or say something pertaining to the concept of freedom. Our national anthem speaks of the land of the free, right? The, the poem, America the Beautiful, talks about the banner of the free. Um, America, my country, tis of thee, that says to let freedom ring. And of course, in God bless the USA, I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free, right? I mean, that's, that's the theme of the next few days here in our country. And over the next few days at, at, the, at the barbecues and parades and gatherings, if you want to deepen the conversation just a bit, you, you could ask this question, why is that such a big deal? Like, why is freedom such a big deal? Why do we go to such extensive lengths to celebrate national freedom? What's the point of freedom? Now, maybe that's not quite, maybe that's deeper than we want to go at our 4th of July barbecues. Perhaps we should use our uh, focus and energy to not get injured by the fireworks we're lighting off. But, but, but this morning, maybe we can think about that, right? To, to, to help us ponder this concept of freedom, let me ask this more specific question. Is freedom only about being set free from something, or is it also, and perhaps more importantly, about being set free to something, being set free for something? Keep that question in mind. Keep that in mind as we, as we study God's Word in, in the Bible this morning. While the 4th of July focuses on the freedom of America, the book of Exodus in the Bible focuses on the freedom of God's people, the Jews. So as we spend our time this summer doing overviews of different biblical books, we are in Exodus this morning. And when the book of Exodus opens, the Jews are not yet a nation of people living in their own land. At the beginning of Exodus, they are a group of people enslaved in the land of Egypt. But if we assume that the Jews are the focal point of Exodus, we'd be wrong. And if we assume that a single Jew, Moses, is the point of the book of Exodus, we'd be wrong. The book of Exodus, which does tell the story of the Jews being set free, is first and foremost a story about God. He is the focal point of the book. And so, that's why my, my outline of the book and, and my sermon outline for this morning, is, as you can see, is it asks eight questions about God. He's the focal point. I think these are eight questions that God's people would have asked in the time of Exodus. I think these are eight questions that later generations of Israelites would have asked as they were learning about their own heritage from the book of Exodus. And I think these are eight questions that you and I still ask today as well. 
And because God is the same yesterday and today and forever, the answers to those questions that we find in Exodus do not change from generation to generation. They're the same answers then that they are today. So, Exodus. The book of Exodus, it uh, it begins on page 45 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow there. As I said, the book begins with God's people in the land of Egypt in slavery. So through God's providential work before Exodus, Joseph had been sold into slavery. He was eventually elevated to the number two position in the land of Egypt, and God gave him information about an upcoming famine. And so Joseph wisely led the nation to store up grain during seven years of prosperity so that not only the people of Egypt, but but others in the world could survive during the forthcoming uh, seven years of famine. And so there was Joseph's father, Jacob, who was living outside of Egypt. He heard about all this grain that was in Egypt, and so he sent the rest of his sons to buy grain. Uh, And once Joseph was reunited with his brothers at the end of Genesis, Jacob brings his entire family to live in the land of Egypt. A problem arose, however, when Jacob died and Joseph died and his his brothers all died and the Egyptian pharaoh who favored Joseph died. The generations which came after brought tension between the Egyptians and the Jews. The Jews were enslaved and forced into hard labor for the next 400 years. I mean, as I said, we thought 250 is a long time. 400 years they were enslaved. And in the midst of their slavery, the people cried out to God. They no doubt knew the stories of of God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, promises to be numerous and to dwell in a land all of their own. But the question must have remained, here we are in slavery, does God see us in our struggle? Does he even know what we're going through right now? Does God know what we are experiencing here in the land of Egypt? Well, listen to the answer to that question. This is in Exodus chapter 2 starting in verse 23. In Exodus 2:23, it says this, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel And God knew. God heard them crying out. God saw them and God knew. He knew. Nothing which took place was hidden from his vision. Not a minute of it. And because God saw and God knew, and yet the people were still living in slavery, I think the next question that naturally arises is, well, does God care? I mean, if God sees us here and if he knows what's going on, then does he care about what we are experiencing? Well, chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, begins with the famous story of God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. 
And we probably remember from that story that God told Moses to take off his sandals uh, because he was on, standing on holy ground. We probably remember that God revealed his name to Moses, I am who I am. In other words, I can't compare myself with anybody. Like, I, I am who I am. But do we remember that God told Moses that he cared about his people in that, in that scene? Look with me at chapter 3, uh, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of, the land, of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. <clears throat> Does God care? Does God care about what he saw? Well, he cared enough to send Moses to confront Pharaoh. He cares enough to provide deliverance through Moses. He cares enough to reveal to Moses his name. He cares enough to have Moses tell his name to all the people. He cares enough to empower Moses to perform miracles in order to get the attention of, of his people and also the attention of Pharaoh. So does God care? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. God cares about what he saw. He sees and he cares. But again, the question comes up, okay, well, if God sees and if God cares, can God truly deliver? I mean, seeing, caring, that's one thing, but, but delivering results, that's another thing, right? Does, can God deliver? I mean, this is the mighty Pharaoh of Egypt we are talking about. If freedom was easy to secure for the people, it would have happened centuries ago. So can God actually bring his people out of slavery and into freedom? Well, in chapters 7 through 12, we, we read the account of the 10 plagues, which God performed in order to reveal his own power, in order to humble Pharaoh, and in order to bring about freedom for his people. I mean, we talked, uh, talked two weeks ago about... Uh, a plague of locusts in the book of Joel. For as bad as a plague of locusts is, that, that's just one of the plagues that was performed here uh, uh, on behalf of God, uh, God performed on behalf of his people. There's helpful studies that, that have been done showing that the 10 plagues performed weren't, weren't just some random thing that God was doing. They were done specifically to show the deficiency of the false gods who were commonly worshipped in Egypt. So gods like Amun-Ra, the sun god, or Hapi, the god of the Nile, or Isis, the goddess of medicine. By the end of the ten plagues, it was clear which god was the true god. And it was equally as clear which gods were false gods. So can God deliver? Well, listen to chapter 12, verse 33. 
This is after the ten plagues have all been performed. Chapter 12, verse 33, it says, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So to answer the question, yes, God showed himself quite capable of delivering his people from slavery. There was no doubt. But one of the interesting things as you you read the plagues, most of them begin with Moses telling Pharaoh to let the people go so that they can go and serve or worship God. And the Hebrew word there, abad, means both worship and serve. It's translated both ways. Those two concepts are closely related, which might be another sermon for another time, right? Just on that topic. But, But now that the people have been set free from slavery in Egypt, now that they can go and serve God, who's to say that God's not going to treat them like the Egyptians did or worse than the Egyptians did? Can they trust this God who has set them free so that they can go worship and serve him? Well, chapters 13 through 18 show how in those early days, God proved himself trustworthy again and again and again. When the people didn't know which direction to travel, God went before them. During the day, he appeared as a cloud. During the night, he appeared as fire. God led them. When Pharaoh pursued the people with all his army, God provided a path through the sea for the people to go safely across. Uh, When they journeyed through the desert and, and could only find bitter water, God turned it sweet so they could drink it. When they couldn't find any water, God provided it for them from a rock. When they became hungry, God provided bread from heaven for them to eat in the form of manna. And when Amalek came to fight against God's vulnerable people, he provided victory for them. So when the people wondered if if God could be trusted, He proved himself to them over and over again on their journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. There was not one need they had which God did not meet. He showed himself that he was trustworthy. And so with that, then, we come to Exodus chapter 19, which is kind of the transition point in the book of Exodus. Chapters 1 through 18 are largely a a summary about what God's people were set free from. But remember, I I asked the question earlier, is, is freedom only about what we are set free from, or is it also about what we are set free for? And so starting in chapter 19, the focus shifts to what God's people are set free for. They were set free to be God's people. They were set free to have a relationship with him. 
So the first part of Exodus is about their journey away from Egypt. The second part of Exodus is about their journey toward God and toward relationship with God. So one of the things that is required to have a relationship with someone is that you know them, right? I mean, you, we can't have a relationship with someone whom we don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe you've been in a situation before where you thought you knew someone and came to find out they've been lying to you for, for maybe years. I mean, who knows? And, and, and in that moment, I mean, what, what happens to the relationship that was there? It, it, it disintegrates, right? But why? Why does that happen? It's because we can't have a relationship with one whom we don't know. It's, it's just required. So when God tells the people that, that he will be their God and that they will be his people, that they will have relationship with him, the question must be asked, is that even possible? Can God truly be known in order to have a relationship with him? And so then chapters 20 through 24 go on to record numerous laws and commands given by God. It, it begins with the Ten Commandments, but, but there are others that follow that as well. Now, if we read those chapters, and, and if we only hear laws that the people were to follow because God told them to, then we're going to struggle to understand how a list of laws answers a question about knowing God. But listen, listen carefully to how God introduced these laws. In chapter 20, verse 1, this is what we read. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So right as God is getting ready to give the Ten Commandments and then other commands after that, God references who he is. And first, he, he says, you know, he, he, it's pertaining to coming out of slavery in Egypt. Remember, I am the God who brought you out of slavery. And then he goes on after that to further reveal his, himself, his character, through the commands that he gives. It's about knowing who he is. Every single command which is given reveals who God is. Every one of them. Every command is a statement which helps the people know God. So when God says to have no other gods before me, he's revealing that he is the almighty God of the universe. It's what he's revealing to the people. When, when, when God says, well, if a man's animal gets loose and it eats grain from another man's field, the first man should make full restitution. When, when God says that, he's revealing that he's a God of justice. When God says not to spread false report, he's revealing that he is a God of truth. When God says do not oppose, uh, uh, do not oppress the sojourner, he's revealing that he's a God who cares for the afflicted and the outcast. God can be known. He can be known. And he sought to make himself known among his people by giving them commands about how they ought to live as people who were supposed to reflect his character. He's known through his commands. But even so, even though God can be known, 
Even though the people see that, yes, we can know God and we can have a relationship with him, they maybe wonder, what kind of relationship can we have with God? I mean, can, can this really be a close relationship after all? We are, we are humans and this is God that we're talking about. Well, chapters 25 through 31 answer this question quite clearly. And, and I know that these chapters regarding the construction of the tabernacle and the clothing of the priests, they're probably not the most riveting section of the book, right? But it doesn't mean that it has nothing to say to us. What it said to God's people at that time was, yes, yes, you can be close to God. And here's the details to build a tabernacle so that God can dwell in your presence. I mean, talk about close, God dwelling in their midst. Not only could they be close to God, but God himself desired it so much that he gave them instructions on how to facilitate it. He said, yeah, I want to be among you. Here, here's, what, here's what we need to do. And the section even ends with, with God giving to Moses the two stone tablets of the testimony written with the finger of God. God himself inscribed these two tablets of the testimony. I mean, can you imagine that? There, have you ever, there, there's this strange closeness that I think we feel when, when we see a famous athlete's autograph on sports memorabilia, or, or maybe if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., and you see the signatures on the Declaration of Independence, and you're like, man, they, they, like, their hand wrote that themselves. Like, there, there's a strange closeness there, I think, that we recognize when we see what somebody physically wrote. How much more intense would it be to, to have had these tablets of the testimony inscribed by the finger of God himself? I mean, there would have been a closeness there that, again, would have answered that question. Yes, God can be close and he provides the way for that to be a reality. Things are off to a great start, right? We've started Exodus. We've gone through chapter 31. The people have been set free from slavery. They've been set free to God, to have relationship with God. But then we get to chapter 32, and there's some major tension that is introduced into the story. The people's relationship with God is predicated on their faithfulness to God's covenant. God stated in chapter 19, when they arrived at Mount Sinai, that, that if, if they obeyed his voice and kept his covenant, they shall be his treasured possession among all the peoples. And one of the first commands of his covenant was to not make idols and bow down to them. Well, after being in God's presence at the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days, Moses descended down the mountain and he saw that the people had already broken the covenant. I mean, we're like six or seven weeks in and they've already broken this covenant. They, they had made a golden calf and were worshiping it as their God. People had taken their newfound freedom and used it to worship an idol. And, and when Moses saw what was taking place, the chapter 32 tells us he burned with anger. He was upset. He threw the tablets down 
the ones in, uh, that God's finger had, he threw those down and broke them. He ground the golden calf into powder and he mixed it in the water and he made the people drink it. I mean, come on, Moses is, he's upset with what took place here. And, and later in chapter 32, we're told the next day, which to me says, you know, Moses had to <laughs> calm down a little bit. The next day, he told the people they had sinned a great sin. And he says in chapter 32, verse 30, he says, I'll go back up the mountain and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. I mean, Moses isn't even sure if it's possible. Perhaps. He knows that they had sinned a great sin. He told the people as much. And he says, I'll go up the mountain and we'll see. Maybe, maybe there's hope here. I mean, understood in his words is the question, does God forgive? Will this God who saw the people in slavery, who cared for them, who powerfully delivered them, who faithfully provided for them, who revealed them, revealed himself to them, and who worked to draw near to them, will this God now forgive them for their unfaithfulness to him? I mean, that's the question. And many people don't realize there, there, there's twice in Exodus where God speaks his name to Moses. We already talked about the first with the burning bush where he says, I am who I am. The second is when Moses goes back up the mountain after the incident with the golden calf to see if God would forgive the people. And so follow with me chapter 34, starting in verse 4. Chapter 34, verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and he said, if, I, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. In the midst of that question, God proclaimed himself to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He proclaimed forgiveness for iniquity and sin. And when Moses heard that, he bowed before God. He repented on behalf of the people and sought that forgiveness, which God promised. I mean, how powerful is this scene that's taking place here? Even though the people had done evil in the sight of God and deserved to be cut off completely from him, God responded in loving forgiveness. And we know that 
that he responded that way because God then renewed the covenant with Moses and he wrote again on those new tablets. It was the visual picture that God had forgiven them, that the covenant was still intact. And it's interesting, this had never jumped out at me before, it's interesting that it is this point in the story when it says that Moses' face shone so brightly. I mean, Moses had dwelled with God previously on the mountain. He'd already been up there 40 days. He'd already been in God's presence at other times. But now is when his face shines so brightly that the people can hardly, hardly look at it when he comes back down. It's almost as if there's something about God's abounding, steadfast love and faithfulness and, and Moses' awareness of it and his experience of it, which makes his face shine so brightly. I mean, it was always there before, but, but the people are understanding his faithfulness much more deeply now. And, and, and God's other attributes, as, as awesome as they are, didn't cause Moses' face to shine in that way, but his steadfast love shown through forgiveness made Moses' face radiate. So the, the question, does God forgive? I think Moses' face says it all. I mean, man. And the exclamation point on the story, the whole purpose of God setting his people free is fulfilled at the end of Exodus when the tabernacle is, is finally completed. And this is what we read in chapter 40, verse 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's purpose in bringing his people out of slavery was to bring them to himself and have relationship with them. And even in the midst of the powerful Egyptian army and the lack of supplies in the desert and and the people's faithlessness to God, he fulfilled his purposes. He fulfilled them. So, So this is a story which tells about the Jews being set free from slavery in Egypt. That's here. But even more so, it is a story about God and his work in and among his people. He brought them out of slavery so that he might bring them to himself. And the story ends with him dwelling in their midst. That's a great story. (laughs) That is is a really, really great story. And what's even more incredible is it's only a precursor. This is only a foreshadow for something that was coming later. What God did at a specific time and place for his chosen people, for the Jews, Jesus does fully for all eternity, for all who come to him. So these questions which God answered for the Jews of that generation, Jesus answers fully and completely for us when it comes to our own bondage and slavery to sin. So let's go back down through those. Does God see? Does God see? Yes, God God sees everything. He knows the struggle you and I have with sin. He knows that apart from him, we are enslaved 
to sin and to death. Does God care? Well, he cared so much that he came to earth and became human in order to do what was necessary to deliver us from that slavery. John writes that God so loves the world, you might say God so cares, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Yeah, he cares. But can he truly deliver us from slavery to sin and death? Well, Jesus showed his power by rising from the dead on the third day after being killed on the cross. I mean, his, his power can't be seen any more clearly than that. He can deliver himself from death, and he can deliver you and me from sin and death as well. But can he be trusted? Can we trust this God? And again, yes. Paul, Paul spoke in the book of Philippians about how, how God met his many needs as he traveled the Roman world preaching the truth about Jesus. And, and then Paul then tells that church at Philippi that God will supply every need of theirs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul affirms that God can be trusted. But, but relationships are more than about just needs being met. Relationships aren't just supposed to be transactional in nature. So, so can God be known and can he be close? And again, the answer is yes. And, and the Holy Spirit is our answer to that question. Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that it is the Holy Spirit who makes known to us the things of God. He says that through the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. We know God through the Spirit's work in our life. And because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, then God is close. And not just tabernacle, you know, in Exodus, close, but within us, dwelling inside of his people. I mean, the glory of God, which descended upon the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, has now descended upon us as his followers. So yes, we can know God and we can be close because he's right with us. But we know ourselves, right? We know we are prone to failure. So when we do, does God forgive? Same question the people were asking in Exodus, we ask it too, does God forgive? And again, the answer is yes. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Peter asks Jesus, Jesus, how often should I forgive someone? Seven times? Should I forgive them seven times? That seems like a lot. And Jesus responds by saying, no, not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. It's not meant to be an exact number but a reflection of the continual forgiveness which God gives to us when we humbly repent before him. Jesus wouldn't have taught us to pray by asking God to forgive us if God doesn't forgive us. So yes, yes, our God forgives. And then in the midst of all of this, God is fulfilling his promises and his purposes in our lives and in the world as a whole.
The time will come when Jesus will return to earth. He will, he will give a final and ultimate judgment upon sin, and he will set up his kingdom on the new earth where we will dwell with him. We will have perfect personal relationship with him for all eternity. I mean, as good as things are at the end of Exodus, and things are pretty good when God's presence comes and dwells in the tabernacle, that is nothing compared to the end of Revelation, when God's purposes are finally completely fulfilled, and he's dwelling with his people in full intimacy for eternity. So I don't, I don't know which of these eight questions this morning is the one that's jumping out at you, but my hunch is there's maybe one or two that, that are standing out more than the others. Whichever one it is, whichever question is, is standing out, know that the answer to the question is yes. Yes. You see it in Exodus, and it's proven throughout the rest of Scripture and God continues to prove it in our lives as well. There's freedom available to us in Jesus. But it's not just freedom for freedom's sake. We are set free, we are brought out of slavery to sin and death, so that we might be brought toward relationship with God. So why is freedom such a big deal? Well, when it comes to spiritual freedom... It's a big deal because we can be with God. We can be with God. In Jesus, we are set free so that we can be with him and have relationship with him. We're set free from something. And that's great, being set free from sin. But we are set free for something, and that's to have that relationship with God. Stand together with me. Let's... Let's come before God, and really the only proper response in the face of all of these yes answers to these questions is to give him praise, is to worship him for who he is. So let's do that. God, I'm so thankful that, that in the book of Exodus we see you teaching your people who you are. And God, I'm so thankful that that is great for us too that who you are, who you were then, is who you are now. And we are so thankful that the answer to each of those questions is yes. Your love for us is so deep, and we can and hopefully will spend our life plumbing the depths of that. And God, we give you praise for it. We know that apart from you, we remain in slavery. Apart from you, the end is death. But in you, the end is freedom and life eternal in relationship with you. And we're so grateful for that. It's why we are here this morning. It's why we worship you. God, help us to not forget that. Help us to remember the answer to those questions. And in the times where we are tempted to doubt, God, would you bring us back to your truth? Would you remind us again of who you are and how you work? 
God, as we sing to you now, would you accept our praise? May it not just be words, but be the response of our heart in reflection of who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen.